Good evening, friends. Great to see you this evening. Uh, my name's Steve Frederick. Uh, I'm the Senior Minister here. It's really encouraging to have you with us uh, over the course of this evening as we keep working our way through Paul's letter uh, to Timothy, uh, who is effectively uh, kind of like a bishop overseeing um, a series of other ministers uh, as they served the church that was in the ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, we're going to have a look at chapter 3 this evening. Most of it, a little bit of it, we'll pick up again from next week, uh, but chapter 3, having that open, would be a great uh, help to me, uh, and it'll be helpful to you as well uh, to do that as we work through. It's an unusual passage, I guess, uh, the nature of it. You probably noticed that as we read through, kind of like a long list uh, so um, we'll, we'll kind of work through that over the course of the evening together. But on your service sheets, there is that QR code that we normally have at the bottom of the sermon outline. Uh, and if there are things perhaps that I don't touch on or things that I do unpack a little bit but you'd like me to clarify or uh, reflect further on, um, you can maybe scan that QR code, have it open on your phone uh, and jot down any questions. And if we've got a chance, we'll come back uh, to address those later on this evening. Well, it can be humbling to realise just how much the households that we're a part of end up shaping us, either for better or for worse, sometimes as well. Although we often like to imagine that we're our own people, uh, the truth is that households that we belong to maybe now or maybe households that we've belonged to in the past, each will shape us, will leave their mark on us in countless ways, some that which we're aware of and maybe a little self-conscious of, others that we won't even have noticed about ourselves just yet, whether it's maybe a religious household that we grew up in or a nuclear family, whether it's a share household, whether it was a low-income or a dual-income household, uh, a migrant household or a musical household, uh, a broken or a blended household, whatever the case was, whatever the mix of our experience, it will have shaped who we ourselves are, and probably how we react in any future households as well. Uh, as a teenager, I would regularly roll my eyes with exasperation at my poor father as he insisted that I immediately put away whatever it was that I'd just been using and usually had left on a table or a bench or somewhere else around the house. I just didn't see the urgency lying behind the need to address it or put it away immediately. 30 seconds... 30 minutes, it's not going to matter if I... As soon as I left home, I think probably the first or second day that I was living out of home sharing a, a house with a couple of other mates, I noticed the very same tendency starting to bubble up in myself. Uh, frustration in the morning to even think about leaving the house with my flatmate stuff left out and around about the house. It was one of those humbling moments where I realised I couldn't escape the influence of the household in which I'd grown up. And it's a bit of an uncomfortable question that the Apostle Paul is urging that Timothy give some attention to when he thinks about how the church household in Ephesus should be managed and looked after. Who was it, Paul is insisting Timothy give attention to, who was shaping the churches who were under his care? Whose character were these communities growing into? Whose likeness were they taking on? Now, the bulk of today's passage will reflect on what qualifies someone to either be an overseer or a deacon. And we're going to come back to that primary, that biggest part of this evening's passage a little bit later on. But I think actually what Paul's most pressing anxiety was, Paul's most pressing anxiety for the Ephesian churches, 
was that they understand exactly whose household they were a part of. And so we're going to reflect on that first and then come back to reflect on how that might shape the kind of leaders that Paul says Timothy should be appointing over that household. So have a look with me at the end of our reading. It was verses 14 to 15. We're kind of going to work backwards. We'll look at those two verses for a moment before going back to look at the overseers and the deacons. Have a read with me from verse 14. Paul writes there, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you, Timothy, with these instructions, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. They are some pretty significant words with which to describe what is otherwise a pretty humble-looking gathering of people on a Sunday afternoon, aren't they? Before the church community is shaped either by the members that make it up or by its leaders who might lead it, first of all, the church is defined by God himself. And that might sound like a pretty self-evident observation to make, something that barely needs any kind of pointing out or prolonged reflection. But I wonder sometimes if our own experience of church life might leave us wondering on occasion whether God is perhaps something of an absent parent, one who officially lends his name to the church community, Christians, but who's basically just running things from head office, more like a franchise than actually a head of a household, someone who is present and there in the midst of those who bear his name. But that's certainly not how Paul perceives the life of the church. Have a look with me at verse 15 again, uh, and I've got it summarized up there on the screen as well. Paul describes the Ephesian churches as the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Now, church, we might assume that it's a bit of a New Testament word, you know, that Christians invented churches and it really only started happening once Christians started meeting together. But the word is actually there in the Old Testament scriptures as well. It's a word that simply means gathering. When God's people gathered for the very first time as a nation at Mount Sinai, down at the base of the mountain while Moses was up the top meeting God as he appeared and spoke with them, they were gathering. Same kind of words, same action, same idea as what we mean when we speak about meeting as a church. Whenever the scriptures speak about the God that we worship being a living God, it's signalling that God is personally present with his people, speaking and acting in their midst. Church doesn't gather simply to talk about God as if he were a deceased ancestor, you know, an absent relative, maybe whose photo, dusty photo and faded photo is there on the mantelpiece somewhere, but who actually plays no active role in the household as it currently is. The church is the heavenly gathering here on earth in which the living God himself is speaking to and addressing the people who are gathered there to listen to him. It's a pretty stunning kind of idea to reflect on, isn't it? It's something that we probably take for granted and we don't think much about when we get together on a steamy Sunday afternoon. But have a look at how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Uh, it's up there on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12. Here he speaks about the church as that heavenly gathering that's meeting here present on earth with God in their very midst. 
Uh, the writer says, you, the church, have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That, that's just another word for gathering. To the church of the firstborn, Jesus, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Not only when Christians gather together would we have every right to experience a sobering awe at the thought that God is here with us and amidst us. I mean, it's not as terrifying, perhaps, as seeing the the clouds descend on Mount Sinai and flashes of lightning and thunder and hearing God's voice audibly speak, but the same reality is present when Christians gather together as the church, nonetheless. But it's not only sobering awe, is it? It's also words of comfort. God speaks as the judge of all. That's who's here with us tonight. But we also have the God who, as it says there in Hebrews, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for judgment for the sin committed against him. But Jesus' blood speaks of comfort, forgiveness, a washing away of our guilt. That's the God who speaks to us every time we gather together. In contrast to the Ephesian churches who and their leaders who simply saw church as a bit of a soapbox from which to babble their own meaningless speculations and controversies, the church was actually supposed to be those who gather to hear, together to hear the living God speak. The church household, Paul says, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. A divinely given architecture within which the truth about God's patience displayed in Jesus is to be proclaimed and spoken about and reflected upon. The way in which that promise of the truth takes concrete expression within the world. Uh, Maybe we don't speak about uh, getting on your soapbox any longer. I don't actually think I've ever seen anyone uh, speak from a soapbox, but maybe you've heard of the idea before. Uh, Before there was YouTube and anyone could get online and just rant to the whole world, people would sometimes take boxes into a public space. It might be a city square or to the domain. There was a little area in the domain in Sydney. They'd set up a soapbox, a little wooden box, stand up to get a bit of an elevation and just let loose with their opinions, their thoughts and enlighten the world on the wisdom that they had to bring. It was a temporary thing. They'd set up their box, let loose, head home again. Not so the church of the living God. It's described with permanence. It's the pillar and the foundation of truth. It's a truth that's been spoken, not just here in church, here at Summer Hill, but in many other churches around Sydney today as well. And many other churches throughout the last thousand years, a couple of thousand years. It's a constant, steady location in which God's truth is spoken. Uh, Paul's understanding of the church as a household from within which the living God speaks directly impacts his thoughts, his perspective on who is qualified to actually lead that church community with whom God is dwelling and present. Strikingly, as we have a look back to verses 1 to 13 in just a moment, very little is actually said about the proficiencies or the role descriptions of these ordained leaders, the overseers and the deacons. 
Rather, it's almost, almost exclusively their character that is Paul's focus in these verses. Uh, There will be some more detail on the roles and responsibilities of these church leaders in coming weeks, especially in two weeks' time. But for this evening's passage, it's almost all on character. Firstly, the fact that the Christian community is foremost God's household is actually reflected in the very titles that are given to church leaders. Have a look with me back again to verse 1. First there we read, Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And then glance down again to verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, and so on. And then again in verse 11, in the same way the women are to be worthy of respect, and, and so on. Uh, when it mentions there, and the women as well, Paul's not just kind of randomly going, oh yeah, I'll just throw in some advice for the females amongst the church community as well. It's speaking there about female deacons, uh, that the office of deacons was exercised by both men and women. And it's not that these leaders are ever called the head of the church. They're not spoken of as those who are the head of the church body. Overseers aren't the head of God's household. It's only ever Jesus who is described as the head of the church. Overseers and deacons are never the focal point of a church community. They're never the beating heart of community unity, whether they're overseers or deacons. They are simply there to oversee and to serve the church on behalf of Jesus, who is the head, the exclusive source of all of the church's identity and unity. And that's in contrary to some other denominations, Christian denominations throughout the world, who do tend to speak of their leaders as those who are heads of the church household. The the Roman church will often speak of the Pope or its bishops as those who are the head of Christ's church. Not so, says Paul. There's only one head. All those who serve the church otherwise are simply overseeing those who belong to Jesus or serving those who belong to the Lord Jesus. Both overseers and deacons are to be also, we read, faithful in marriage and able to respectfully manage their own children. See that there for overseers in verse 2 and verse 4. And the same idea is repeated again uh, further down in the passage in verse 12 for deacons. Especially, if you just think about it for a moment, especially in the case of an overseer, if there is an overseer who is unfaithful to his wife, then surely that is not someone to whom Jesus would entrust his own bride, the church, for care and safekeeping and honour and respect. And the one who can only lead their own children by violent force, then might not they also tend to dominate church members in exactly the same way? That's why the way in which an overseer or a deacon responds to and reacts with their own families has bearing and significance. Not just as some abstract, arbitrary, moral demand, because there's a good chance that it will reflect something of how they engage with and deal with others who are under their care. And nurture as well. While it's only the overseer who is actually spoken of as managing God's household, both the overseer and deacons are equally responsible 
to display a relational capacity in caring for those who are precious to God, who are precious members of his household. Uh, It's often been said, I've heard it in several different forums, that women are particularly those who are especially nurturing and gentle in their dealings with others. And it's a good idea to have women involved in different leadership capacity and different leadership roles because they bring a gentle and nurturing aspect to the way in which that's carried out. But that's not how Paul frames things, is it? He even says of male overseers that they are equally to display a gentle care for God's household tenderly feeding God's household with their teaching in verse 2 rather than hungrily feeding upon God's people financially just sucking whatever they can get out of the church community rather than giving to it as Paul says there in verse 3 and in verse 8 warning against financial greed it's not the role of the deacons to do all the warm fuzzy kind of you know relational supportive stuff And the overseers just to turn up on Sunday and speak words from the pulpit as if that's enough by itself. Even the act of teaching is to be an expression of gentle care for those who belong to the Lord God. Uh, The fact that the Christian community is the church, that is the gathering, the meeting together of God's people, this too is to be reflected in the behaviour of its leaders. Uh, Have a look there with me at verse 2. Um, There might have been one mention uh, of a requirement for an overseer that surprised you. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. We'll come back to those in a moment. But also hospitable. Now, I don't think uh, Paul is suggesting here that we should ordain people on the basis of a bake-off. Whoever can kind of pull off the best baking and the best cakes... They're the ones that you entrust into God's care. Uh, I'm sure God's people can benefit greatly from those who can serve in those ways. But what is it that Paul is saying that overseers, because it's not even mentioned of deacons, that overseers especially should be hospitable? I think it's likely reflecting this context in which, at the time Paul writes, there were no dedicated church buildings that church communities owned, not like this one. The overseers were particularly to be those who made their homes available for church gatherings together. They were to be those who had a capacity for welcoming all believers together, even those believers who might have been strangers and just lobbing up on your footstep from another city while travelling, never erecting barriers to participating in the church community that simply reflected the church leader's own favouritism or partiality. Church leaders especially were to be hospitable to those who might otherwise be overlooked or ignored. I wonder if Paul does perhaps have in mind Jesus' own words about welcoming, especially those believers, who might tend to be easily overlooked or dismissed in the world's eyes. Uh, Hopefully we've got a slide up here on the screen from Matthew 10. Uh, There's several times when Jesus speaks in this manner. Jesus says, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water... Uh, That's not complicated hospitality, right? A cup of cold water isn't a difficult thing to rustle up. If anyone even gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. 
Notice there that the significance of the hospitality is not its grandeur, not how big it is, not how it might compare with what someone else can provide, but the honour and dignity that it supplies to those who otherwise might be considered just little ones, those who could be easily overlooked without anyone writing a letter of complaint or kicking up a fuss. That's to be significant for those who are to be overseers of God's people. Those who oversee and serve as deacons need to also be able to demonstrate by their manner of living an awareness that a holy God lives amongst them. Do you remember when, maybe it's a little bit hard to remember all the details of the first reading from Deuteronomy, when God was appearing on Mount Sinai and all the people were gathered round down the bottom, they were terrified at the thought of being in the presence of a holy God, aware of just how much of a gap there was between God's holiness and his character and their own character as a people. That's to be an awareness that overseers and deacons also have, given that God is dwelling here amongst us as a people. We're to be above reproach, that is, not liable to shame God by our public behaviour. That's what's mentioned there in verse 2 for overseers and in verse 7 for deacons. They're to be self-controlled and temperate, that is, well-measured in their manner of dealing with others. They're not to be addicted to wine, verse 3. They're to be free of pride and conceit, as it's mentioned there in verse 6. Both overseers and deacons are to also show by their manner of behaviour, not only that they're aware of God's presence amongst them, but that they take the word of this living God seriously, that they take seriously the words that God speaks to his people. Because a Christian community is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, an overseer especially is to be an able, that is a skillful teacher that's mentioned there in verse 2. This is really the only actual competency that is mentioned of an overseer, at least in this passage. Uh, In coming weeks, we'll dig back into this a little bit more. More is said about exactly what is the overseer's role in teaching. How does that work out? How does that differ to the whole range of other kind of speech that all of God's people are to engage in? Uh, So we'll look at that particularly in a couple of weeks' time. But it's through their teaching, specifically, that the overseer is to concretely exercise their leadership in the church community not by bossing people around, not just by making the final decision that everyone has to like or lump, they lead by their teaching, by their speaking of the truths that God has spoken to us. But even so, deacons are equally expected to hold to the deep truths of the Christian faith with a clear conscience. Have a look at verse 9 with me even though it doesn't specifically mention deacons' teaching or their speaking ministry, uh, it does say this in verse 9. The deacon must keep, um, keep hold to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Uh, while teaching itself seems especially associated with the office of overseers, the multiplicity of other public speaking ministries of praying, of prophesying, of exhortation, of encouragement, perhaps of things like service leading, things like that, other acts of service and ministry that are to be offered by deacons, they are no less to be shaped and characterised by a profound grasp 
of God's truth, the gospel message of the Lord Jesus, the one who displays God's immeasurable patience towards sinners that the Apostle Paul himself had been called to declare back in chapter 1. Uh, in the Anglican tradition, uh, those who were baptised and confirmed as members of the church community, they would often be prepared for that baptismal confirmation by the deacons. They'd offer this supportive role of preparing people to make sure that they too understood the deep truths of the Christian faith. And Lauren did a whole stack of that work with those who were confirmed here at Summer Hill Church just at the end of last year. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the role of deacons, actually. Uh, the, the scriptures say a little bit more about uh, the overseers that we'll look at in two weeks' time. But the role of deacons is described in much more general uh, and abstract terms, although we do know about their role from other various moments in the scriptures the actual role description itself isn't spelled out in amazing detail. Uh, if you want to ask me or quiz me about that uh, in question time, uh, we might be able to revisit that if that's something that there are some of us who've got questions on. But it's not just having a deep knowledge of the truth of God, of God's truth, that matters for these overseers and deacons. Equally important is the manner with which they speak of this truth. They're not to be quarrelsome in verse 3. That is, an overseer or a deacon isn't to be the kind of person who takes any opportunity to enter into a bit of a, a scramble over a, a disputed passage, you know, who loves to debate into the long hours of the night just for the sake of it, who can't let go of a discussion because they need to be proved right. We're also told in verse 11 that they're not to be malicious in the manner of their speaking, seeking to undermine or speak poorly of others. They're to be temperate and well-measured in the words that they speak about others. In contrast to those Ephesian church leaders, those wannabe spiritual influencers who imagine the church as being little more than a soapbox from which to speak their own meaningless speculations and controversies. The church instead gathers personally to hear the living God himself speak. And those who were appointed to oversee and to serve God's household were to do so in a manner, to speak in such a manner that graciously reflects the character of the one who is the head of the household, the Lord Jesus himself. Now, there are two final phrases uh, that I thought it might just be worth clarifying before we wind things up. It's been, been a bit of an unusual passage over the course of this evening. It's all focused on the overseers and the deacons. And it does say that these, anyone appointed to these positions are to be already displaying this kind of character. But it has been really focused just on those who are appointed to particular roles. And so I thought it might be worth just reflecting on two final comments that are made about each of them, one that describes the office of the overseer and one describes the office of the deacon that might help put ourselves in line with these particular people who are being addressed in detail. Uh, first of all, have a look back with me at our opening verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. To speak of this role of an overseer as being a noble task might make it sound as if it's a uniquely elevated 
mode of service. And there are some very distinct things that bear upon the character of being an overseer that we'll look at in coming weeks. But the term there for noble task, all it means is a good work. That is, the person who desires to be an overseer desires a good work. It's exactly the same term that is used at the end of the letter to describe the service of elderly widows who have proven themselves dedicated to good work over the course of their whole lives. It's worth remembering that this noble task, this good work of being an overseer, doesn't mean that other acts of service expressed in the body of Christ are somehow less good or less noble and honouring to God. You might recall from 1 Corinthians uh, about a year ago or so, so you probably don't recall, I barely remembered it myself, Uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul said there when he was using this metaphor of the church body that those members of the church body who are lacking honour will be provided greater honour in order to elevate and dignify the work of care and service that they contribute to the church body, even if it's not something that appears grand or glorious or upfront, so to speak. And then secondly, let's have a look at our final verse, uh, verse 13, describing the deacon. There we read, Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. To speak of an excellent standing, I think, is probably reflecting something of an acknowledgement of the great work that they do, that they deserve honour and recognition for the work that they do in the service of the rest of the church body. But what about that verse after it, following on from it, about receiving a great assurance in their faith, in the faith in Christ Jesus? I don't think that it's suggesting that those who serve somehow earn for themselves a greater assurance of God's acceptance of them, a greater assurance of a future salvation. That would be out of the tenor of the way in which the Scriptures speak about the assurance of all those who have entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus the same. The, The phrase great assurance is often just translated great boldness, throughout the scriptures and I think it's referring to a deepening boldness and confidence in God's work amongst his people that likely strengthens the more and more as a deacon sees God at work in the lives of those believers that they care for and minister to and serve on a day-to-day basis. Don't you see that even reflected in the way in which the Apostle Paul speaks? As he writes to various churches that he's been a part of, that he's ministered to throughout the world, he reflects on the joy and confidence and boldness that he has about them, about the faith of the Lord Jesus and its ability to transform and change people from the way in which he's seen God transforming those that he has been serving and ministering to and speaking the gospel to. Uh, I began this evening by approaching the passage a little bit backwardly, beginning with those final verses that speak about the church as being God's household, about being the church, the gathering of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Because it's very easy for us to get so wrapped up in details like those that are listed here for the overseers and the deacons that we forget what really matters is the character of God himself, and the kind of character that he lends to those people 
who meet together in his name. Whatever else we might say about overseers or deacons, their work is not a good work, ultimately, if it fails to, people, to draw people's attentions to the fact that they are the household of the living God, that it is Christ who is their head, who has cleansed them and drawn them together as one people. And that's why Paul is giving so much attention to guarding the truth of the good news about the Lord Jesus from false teaching throughout this whole letter. We've seen plenty of it already. We're going to see more of it in the coming chapters as well. It's ensuring that we hold to the Lord Jesus that will be the greatest safeguard for the health and the vitality of God's people. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often come into church, into the church gathering, wearied, sometimes battened, sometimes, Father, even anxious and hesitant about what our experience amongst God's people is going to be. Perhaps worried about whether we will be honoured or recognised, whether we'll be encouraged or trampled upon. Father, we do ask that you would give each of us an ever-deepening grasp of what kind of meeting this is. That it's not our church household, but yours. That you are not an absent head of the household, but that you're a living God who dwells amongst us, speaking and acting every time we gather together. And Father, we ask that whoever we might be, whether a little one, whether an overseer, whether a deacon, that we might grasp that it is your household into which we've been drawn and that that knowledge might increasingly transform the way in which we deal with one another and approach our regular gatherings together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going to sing again. Feel free to send through any questions or clarification comments.